So, to the New Testament, to Ephesians chapter 6. We are at Ephesians chapter 6. The text for this morning is verse 14. Ephesians 6, 14. So that today we will deal with the topic of the breastplate of righteousness. We'll begin reading from Ephesians 6, verse 10 through verse 18. This also is God's holy word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our loving Father, we thank you that you have given us our breastplate of righteousness, that it is your son, Jesus Christ, his perfect righteousness given to us as a free gift that you have warned us that we cannot earn it, we cannot work for it, that it is given to us as a gift that we are to receive by faith apart from works. Father, we pray in thanks for you know what it is that we need, that you saw what it is that we lack, that we lack our own righteousness. And Father, we thank you for the perfect gift of your Son. Father, we pray that many would hear this good news, that Jesus is the one who forgives sinners. We thank you, Father, for your mighty power. We pray for the gift of your spirit that we might accept and believe this. We pray if any are here who have not trusted in Jesus Christ, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work, that we would believe upon him. Father, that sinners would repent of sins, forsake them, and instead cling to Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, uh, for your son to be exalted, that your servant would be humble. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> the field of, of armor and defense, uh, though much has changed regarding technology, it seems like the systems are unchanged. Here we talk about the breastplate of righteousness, perhaps the modern equivalent worn by a, a soldier or a police officer, uh, we would think of that in terms of the, the term or the acronym SAPI or ESAPI, uh, Small Arms Protective Insert. This is a piece of ceramic with some type of uh, high-density poly, polyurethane backing. You can think about a milk jug uh, that's changed in form. So the ceramic 
takes that rifle bullet and ceramic being very hard but brittle, it shatters. And then the, the high density polyurethane on the back functions like a catcher's mitt. So it, it blunts, it stops the force of that bullet and then it functions as a catcher's mitt so that uh, your, your body doesn't conform to that shape of the bullet. Here, you think about how uh, the, the, the purpose of the rifle plate is, is that it would be destroyed. And that's so that the bullet doesn't penetrate you. Here, you think about Satan's ploy. Imagine if a soldier or a policeman had his, his plate carrier with his plates, his two plates front and back, and someone came by and says, I'm going to take these, these expensive, uh, durable uh, plates out of his plate carrier, and I'm going to put in uh, some uh, milk chocolate sheets. So it's, it's nice and heavy, but then uh, you know, it doesn't do its job. And you think about what Satan does. He, he wants to be able to give you something that, that is phony, something that won't protect you, but you think it will. And isn't this the case with uh, uh, other religions or self-righteousness? That he wants you to think, you know what, uh, you're, you're good enough. So long as you're trusting yourself, you're better than most of the people. And, and the, these would be the phony sheets that he puts inside these plate carriers and says, you don't need to trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. You just need to be better than the rest of the people. Here, you think about how the Apostle Paul, he's presenting our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the whole purpose of his letter to the Ephesians. And we've covered uh, the majority of this book. I don't know how long it's been. We haven't gone quickly. Some people have hinted that I should go faster. Right? Uh, others have, have hinted I've gone too fast, believe it or not. But here we, we look at Ephesians. It presents our glorious Savior in Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul has gotten toward the end of his letter. And he's wrapping up. And then he's speaking about this whole armor. And it's a summary of everything that he's talked about so far. So we think about these, these, the whole armor of God. We talked last week about the belt of truth. And the question about what not there is such a thing as absolute truth. Well, the truth is in Jesus. Because Jesus presents himself as the truth. That our God defines truth. That he is the truth. And that the claim of there is no absolute truth is really the claim there is no God. They're one and the same. So here we see in this passage, wearing the breastplate of righteousness entails first receiving Christ's righteousness as your own, and second, striving by the Spirit for your sanctification. Wearing the breastplate of righteousness entails first receiving Christ's righteousness as your own, and second, striving by the Spirit for your sanctification. We'll look at this in three points. The first is the desperate necessity for the breastplate of righteousness for battle. The second, the miserable alternative. And third, the divine provision. So we look at the first, the first point, the desperate necessity of the breastplate of righteousness for battle. Here, the Apostle Paul is finishing up his letter. He's getting to the end. Here, we summarize that most of Paul's letters... He begins with, this is what God has done for you. This is what you ought to believe. And then somewhere in the letter, he transitions to, uh, based upon that belief, this is how then you ought to live. 
Paul does exactly the same thing here in Ephesians. In Ephesians 1 through 3, he speaks about the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then in Ephesians 4 through 6, he commands obedience to our Lord. And if you are believing Ephesians 1 through 3, and you are obeying Ephesians 4 through 6, then you will be a threat to the kingdom of Satan. Seeing that you are a threat to the kingdom of Satan, then you will be a target. You have a target on your front and on your back. Here we look earlier at verse 13. That the very statement that the apostle Paul makes, in order to stand firm, you must put on the whole armor of God. In order to stand firm, you must put on the whole armor of God. So if you're not putting on the whole armor of God, then you won't be standing firm. There will be certain defeat otherwise. Well, wait a minute. You're talking about defeat? So uh, I didn't know I was in a battle. Oh, well, that puts you in a difficult spot. Because here, you think about someone who walked into a physical battle, and he or she did not know that he's in this battle. Well, then... It seems like that person would suffer certain defeat because if they didn't know they're in a battle, they wouldn't know that they have all this armor on which they don't have. They wouldn't have their armament with them. So not knowing that you are in a spiritual battle, this is good preparation for your certain defeat. Here, we're reminded, even as we read earlier in verse 12 of Ephesians 6, that our enemies are not mere men. We ought not to see humans as our enemies. It's Satan and his demons in the heavenly places that they are the enemies. Their goal is very simple. Their goal is very simple. They want to see you damned. They want to see you condemned on the last day. Last week, we looked at this belt of truth. It was the first piece of armor to put on. You can imagine a man uh, who's uh, got his his underwear on or his undergarments, he, he begins by putting on the armor, by putting on this belt of truth. And the belt of truth then is this very matter. It opposes all of relativism. This idea, hey, what's true for you may not be true for me. Or this idea, hey, there's, there's many ways to be saved. There's many ways to heaven, just as there's many ways to Rome. There's a denial there of absolute truth. So the claim in the scriptures that God is absolute truth, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, no one goes to the Father except through him, there is a clear-cut rejection of that. But this belt of truth is the first step. Here we think about how the Apostle Paul, imprisoned in Rome, even as he's writing these letters, being chained to this guard, uh, here, you would imagine the guard being stuck to the Apostle Paul, hearing his prayers, hearing uh, the things that he thinks about and talks about uh, having a captive audience. Here, the Apostle Paul would have witnessed, them. oh, this is very interesting, the, the articles you have on. You, I'm, I'm, he's seeing his shoes and, and his greaves, his, uh, his garments, his, his, his shiny breastplate. How about his helmet? All of these things. Here, we think about how the Apostle Paul applies this from the physical realm to the spiritual realm. 
Think about the function of the breastplate in ancient warfare. The breastplate covered everything from the base of your neck, this what's called the substernal notch, to about your waistline. It covers the front and it covers the back too. Uh, there were different periods and different uh, articles used. The breastplate could have been made out of like horse or cow hooves that were sliced so that they, they formed uh, thinner pieces. So you think about a cow hoof or a horse's hoof, that's not much different than our fingernail, but it's much thicker. And then they would tie those with pieces of string, and, and then there would be plates around, they'd put leather on top of it. So you think about something that would stop a sword thrust or an arrow. Other periods, they had a, a, a uh, one piece of, of metal, front and back. Uh, maybe the back piece was, was a different piece, but the front piece and the back piece, two pieces put together. And here you think about how, well, the head, the head and the neck were probably uh, better targets. They're more lethal targets, but they're also smaller targets. So the torso, the thoracic cavity, the abdomen, that these would have been the vitals for a region or for a man. It protected the heart, the lungs, <clears throat> the plumbing, and the vital organs. We think about the modern times, uh, the, the plate armor was to protect your your uh, boiler room, so to say. And if there were other injuries along the side, even, even in the abdomen, lower abdomen, they could say, well, we can get you to a field hospital and patch you up. But when you think back then, any injury to your abdomen or, or your body where there was an open wound, you, you were probably going to die of infection without the understanding of cleanliness and all that. Uh, th those things were dangerous. For a soldier back then, for a soldier today to go into battle without a breastplate, this would have been seen as suicidal. And so also, acknowledging that you are in a spiritual battle even right now, to think that you can get by without the breastplate of righteousness, that this is spiritual suicide. Here, think for a moment about the, the importance of the vitals that the breastplate of righteousness protects. It protects the heart. It protects the heart. You think about the organs that are most vital, the brain, uh, the heart, the lungs. The next one would probably be the liver. Uh, but here, the breastplate of righteousness would protect your heart. For, for the ancients, for the Easterns, they believed that the heart was the center of thoughts and desires. Here, Genesis 6, 5. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The thoughts of his heart. <clears throat> we also have the warning in Proverbs 4.23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Meaning your desires. What is it that you desire? This tells you a lot about who you are. The heart also harbors your loves. It harbors your loves. Also the seat of your conscience. Here, we ought to think of our consciences as a gift of God. This is something that he's given us. Now, you think also about the fall, the Adam and Eve, they fell. That there's still a conscience. It's a, a tarnished conscience. It's not perfect, but it's still a gift of God. And 
You think about what Satan does with it. He does quite a number with the guilt and shame that comes with a conscience that's wounded. In the heart also is the matter of your will. The enemy sees a dead soldier as good, but it sees something as better, a wounded soldier, a soldier who is fighting the wrong direction, a soldier who is misdirected, a soldier who has lost his will to fight. That is better, the enemy thinks, because if he's fearful, uh, if he's doubtful, he's going to be talking about it with others, and that will, that will spread among other soldiers. This is, this is why even uh, in the scriptures, the Old Testament, it speaks about how such people should get out of the group because it's contagious. There's also the, the organs and the bowels. The ancients, especially the Eastern, they believed certain organs were responsible for the emotions, whether it be the liver, the, the kidneys, or the intestines. They, they thought that these were the seat of the emotions. And the breastplate of righteousness is a guard for you and for me from these runaway emotions. Here we think about the desperate necessity for this breastplate. It begins with the fallen state of man. So we have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And many people think about this, and they think about it no differently as Aesop's fables. That these are all just a big myth. But here, the scriptures refer to them as real people. These were true events. You think about any culture. Any culture makes up stories to explain certain things about life. Who has come up with a story as authentic as the garden and the fall that we have in the scriptures? It explains how sin entered the world. The death that God warned about, he had said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. This is, this is a pattern that we see. Satan comes in there. He promises something different. And whatever he promises, none of it will be true. God's promises, God's warnings were true. Satan's were false. Adam and Eve found that out the hard way. Perhaps you and I are finding that out the hard way each day. Here we think about the death that they had. They didn't, they didn't immediately die physically, but physical death came to them. There was also the spiritual death, the loss of communion with God, this fellowship. So after they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what happened? They heard the sound of God walking and then they ran and they hid in the bushes. What for? It's because they were ashamed. The fellowship, this communion with God was broken. They're under God's wrath and curse. All the miseries of this life and the pains of hell forever. They lost their original righteousness, this corruption that comes. Here, I need not go much farther than those of you who are parents. You think about these children that you have. Did you have to teach them to lie? No. Did you have to teach them to, to strike their sibling? I mean, how did this one kid, he hit this other kid? Well, where did they see that? Did they ever see you strike your husband or, or your wife? No, they didn't see that. That was in their hearts. That, that, that was there. You didn't have to teach them to sin. Any parent can see that. 
We don't have to teach our children. They learn, they, they learn that. They're just manifesting what's inside of them. It's what is in the heart coming out. Here we see the evidence of the sin nature. Adam and Eve became self-conscious. They became ashamed of their nakedness. None of Satan's promises in the garden were true. They didn't become like God. They lost righteousness. And then they brought upon themselves guilt and shame instead. It had an effect not only on them, but on the whole human race. All mankind fell in Adam. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So we have the fallen state of Adam and Eve. Then you have the wiles of Satan. Before the fall, Adam and Eve had the ability to sin, and the ability not to sin. And they were tempted by Satan such that they fell. Imagine how much easier Satan would have of a job to tempt sinners. In fact, it seems like for most sinners, he doesn't have to do much at all. You think about his ways. He begins by opposition. He, he, he begins by opposition. of He caricatures. He exaggerates certain things. He exaggerates Jesus. He exaggerates and he caricatures Christians. Oh, man, there goes that Christian again knocking on my door, trying to tell me of my need for Jesus Christ, and that person is just annoying. Oh, maybe that's the annoying person is me. <clears throat> Here, you think about the church. Well, the church is just a full of a bunch of hypocrites. Why do I want to be a part of them? Think about godliness. These are the people who are no fun. And he ramps up. He ramps up that opposition with ridicule and reviling. Laws written against Christians. It, it always seems to be the Christian's fault. You think about oh, whatever, whatever problem there was, uh, the, the great fire in, in Rome, okay? it's Christian's fault. The convenient scapegoat. And then persecution that comes. That's opposition. But it seems like in our country, maybe that's ramping up, but Satan does enough with distractions. He has all kinds of distractions. So long as we're not considering our eternity, he's happy. Think about descriptions, descriptions of wealth. Too much of it, not enough of it, how to spend it, how to share it. Think about your career, what you're doing, where you want to be, uh, what you didn't accomplish, whatever is the case. Think about children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Think about our comforts. Oh, man, it's, it's so easy to think, okay, well, I, I just need to be comfortable. This is what we refer to as the satanic lullaby, that we're lulled to our sleep in comfort. Thinking about our retirement, hey, how, how much can you blame someone? Hey, he's riding the bus, sitting next to me. Hey, I'm just trying to make it to retirement. It hey, doesn't seem to be that bad, but hey, is that a distraction? And about health. All kinds of health issues come up, sickness, and then we get into the realm of politics and there's no end. All kinds of distractions in our lives. The last thing that Satan wants for you is for you seriously to consider your spiritual state. That you would stop and think, wait, wait a minute, where will I be for eternity? He doesn't want you to think about that. He wants you to be distracted. Hey, stay comfortable, right? Watch the big screen. Uh, 
Enjoy, enjoy the, the ball games and all that. And, and then the last thing he would want is for you to hear the word of God, to read the word of God. But he's got methods. If you open the word of God, if you're hearing the word of God, he has methods to deal with that also. So I ask you, where are you right now? I'm not asking you where you are physically. I think you know that. But where are you spiritually? Are you trusting yourself? Are you distracted? Are you distracted by the wiles of Satan? Do you even see your need for Jesus Christ and this breastplate of righteousness that he freely offers to sinners? So that's the first point, the desperate necessity. We have the second point, the miserable alternative to the breastplate of righteousness for battle. We consider the other world religions. There's many different origins, many legends, many starts, many stories. But if you put them in a pot and you boil it down, it's distilled down, these world religions distilled down to this. Man saves himself. You're saved by your works. What can you do to achieve enlightenment, karma, get to heaven, whatever's the case, it's all the same. What can you do to work your way to heaven? Now, here, I suppose some of you are thinking, Frank, you are so incredibly arrogant to condemn every other religion but your own. If that were only my opinion, you're right, that would be horrendously arrogant. But it's not my opinion. It's what Jesus spoke. It's what he proclaimed about himself, John 14, 6. He says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one goes to the Father except through him. He is basically saying, I have a monopoly to heaven. Nobody else will get you there. So that's not my claim. It's what Jesus, our Lord, said. Yeah. Here, we come to this repeated theme. Perhaps we'll see it a few times. After Adam and Eve fell, they realized that they didn't have a convenient bush or a tree wherever they needed to be. So then they picked leaves off the fig tree, they sewed them together, and they tried to make garments for themselves. You can imagine, fig leaves. It's nice to have square or rectangular sheets, but fig leaves just don't grow like that. You know, the, the threads tear apart the leaves. They don't function well as garments for covering, and God instead provided them animal skins, foreshadowing of Jesus who would cover our sin, our nakedness, and our shame. But this repeated theme of fig leaves, uh, poor attempts to cover ourselves. <clears throat> Here, when you think about the other world religions, Proverbs 14.12 summarizes it well. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Satan likes it when that real protective insert is removed and milk or dark chocolate sheets are put in there instead that do nothing, styrofoam, whatever it is. When you think about the Apostle Paul, our elder read earlier from Philippians 3, here he was a well-advanced young man in Judaism. He talks about world religion. He talks about his own religion. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, 
of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted all as loss for the sake of Christ. Here, those are the world religions. Then you think about secularism, non-religion, which is a religion. The attempt to be absent of religion, or ultimately atheism. Here, some people think that they're very smart. They say, we have no more need for God. We're atheists. Oh, well, very simple. God, God, has, uh, God has a name for atheists. We have that in the scriptures. Uh, it's Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So, so man in his intelligence thinks, we don't need God. God says, hey, those people who deny me are fools. Here, you think about the whole world. The whole world revolves around God. That God is at the center. But then in secularism or humanism, whatever you call it, man wants to be the center and says that we are the center of everything. Everything revolves around us. You think about how these criticisms can come up. Hey, you're a Christian. You believe in this word of God. How is it that you can live just on one book? And maybe they'll even say, hey, how, how can you be so dumb that you've only read one book in your life? Well, certainly, we would hope that Christians would read more than one book, but you think about what is the book, what is the lens by which we judge all those other books that we read? It's through that lens of Scripture. It's God's Word. None of the other books are inspired by the Holy Spirit. God, God's Word alone is. Secularism teaches that man is the measure of all things. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. That's a summary of the book of Judges. Just You, you want to you have some entertainment uh, of... Uh, truth that's, that's stranger than uh, fiction or you read the book of Judges everyone did what was right in their own eyes man is the measure of all things that's, that's the outcome but it doesn't stop there it continues we think about the counterfeit Christianity it's not Jesus Christ and him alone for your righteousness it's Jesus and your works the scripture is addressed as very principle, Romans 11.6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Meaning you have grace and you add some works to it, it's no longer grace at all. Here, this is a warning to all of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ. Self-righteousness so easily creeps into your life. And I understand you're saying, what about me? Well, I, I'm, I'm the greatest culprit in the sense that ministers have it worst of all. Of course, I have to look in the mirror. But self-righteousness creeps in so easily. This is how it works. Jesus saves. That's the message. Jesus saves. To, and, and you have the slight change. Jesus helps you to save yourself. And we can even admit, hey, Jesus helps you to save yourself, and you can't do it without his help. It's still self-righteousness. Jesus saves. That is the message. Salvation is of the Lord, Jonah 2.9. You have some sense that self-righteousness is present in your life, 
in my life, if ever we're resting on our past laurels, resting on your past achievements, that there was a period in your life where you were walking closely with the Lord, all kinds of good things were happening, and that was 30 years ago. Well, where are you now? Self-righteousness may be sitting there. There's a focus on rituals, focus on rituals of religion. There's an obedience to the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law is absent. Self-righteousness could very well be in your heart. That Christians, you have the duty to check yourself regularly for this self-righteousness. This is how it works. Self-righteousness is like the garbage, the garbage can in your house. There's two reasons why you take out the garbage. One is the garbage is full. You take it out. There's other occasions when the garbage is not full, but it what? It stinks. And then you take it out. But this is what we must do regularly, meaning a spiritual inventory. Am I stinking? It gets even closer to home. We're not talking about a garbage in your house. We're talking about you. How bad do you have to smell before you realize that you stink? You have to smell pretty bad because we're, we're kind of deadened to our own smell. It's others around you pick up on your smell, perhaps your sibling or your mother. Hey, you know what? You smell bad. You, you need to take a shower. No, 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 mom, I'm fine. Right? No, son, you, you need to take a shower. Until you give it a few more days. Man, I stink. It's like, hey, your mom's been telling you that for several days. Well, same thing with this matter of self-righteousness. It seems as if self-righteousness is like the smell. It's that other people notice it first. Hey, someone comes to your home. Hey, uh, something smells. I don't smell it. I'm here all the time. Right? Same thing with your odor. Self-righteousness, oftentimes picked up by others rather than yourself. The warnings. Here, we think about how have you gotten to the point that you're able to see these miserable alternatives to Christ and his righteousness? Other religions? Ultimately, if you're trusting yourself, if you're saying, hey, listen, at the end of the day, when Jesus... When I come to Jesus as judge, what will I present to him? If I'm trusting that that I'm going to die on my best day, uh, we can't count on that. He's going to see down to the inner recesses of the heart. There's no hiding anything from him. Have you gotten to that point that you see miserable alternatives? That was the second point. Here we have the third point, the divine provision of the breastplate of righteousness for battle. We have what's called righteousness imputed by Jesus. It comes by faith. What is this word imputed? Eh, We use it rather often when, uh, hey, why are you trying to impute motives on me? It's like, hey, okay, we got it. So you're taking motives from somewhere else and you're putting it on me. Hey, that's, that's very much the description about Christ's imputed righteousness to us. You think about the concept of, of accounting that, uh, it wasn't so much the, the uh, Excel or the electronic screen. It was a book, a ledger. So on your side of the ledger, it's debt, 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 debt. You show up to the bank. 
you try to you, you write a check, you, you bring a check to the bank, your own check, and you try to cash it. It's like, hey, listen, oh, we don't have any money in your account. In fact, we have this massive debt. And and then you have Jesus, his account, they open his account, and it's like, man, he has all of this wealth, all of this righteousness. And what happens in the free offer of the gospel is that your debt gets transferred to Jesus and his righteousness is transferred to you. So here, what you have is is that we come to Jesus. What is our contribution in our salvation? I don't know about you. I I, I bring a a whole load of my sins before the Savior. And we say, Savior, this this is what we have. This is what we... This is, well, this is why we need you. And Jesus says, hey, listen, I can take care of all of that. He came to live the perfect life. He died the sinless death on the cross. We have a sacrifice. It's not a goat. It's not a, it's not a cow. It's not a sheep. What we have is Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness for us. Now, some of you are thinking, well, what can I do to earn that? Well, this is getting started on the wrong foot. We can't do anything to earn it. Jesus says that you and I must accept his offer by faith. We must believe upon him. And by faith, it means it's no longer according to works. Some of you are wondering, well, wait a minute. This message you're telling me is too good to be true. How can my sin be covered by someone else? How can his righteousness freely be given to me? Well, I have the question for you. Are you going to believe God at his word? Are you going to believe him and say, this offer is true. It's found in his word. We read earlier in Isaiah chapter 61, this very principle. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Think about it in that way, that Jesus' righteousness is a free gift. That the dirt, the scum, whatever, that you are washed clean. You've, you've put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when that God sees you, he sees you covered in Christ's righteousness. It's like that story in Zechariah 3 of Joshua the high priest. He had his turban and his, uh, his priestly garments on. They were soiled. Satan there was there accusing. right? He was saying, hey, that man is unclean. He's dirty. He's a priest who's dirty. Take off the filthy garments, clean robes, put on him the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then then you have Satan still accusing, but who is defending? The defense attorney is Jesus Christ. He is the one who protects us. Think about some ways that others have summarized it in the past. These hymn writers, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I dare not trust the cedar's frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Here, we, you can't have one hand grabbing onto your works, another hand grabbing on to Jesus Christ. You've got to let your works go. You think about what the Apostle Paul said. He talked about all his, all his merits, all his religiosity, and he said, that stuff is a load of dung. Philippians 3, 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God 
that depends on faith. It's not as if faith earns it, no. Faith is only the means by which you receive it. This is the good news of the gospel, that sinners can stand before the righteous God and not be zapped dead by a lightning bolt. It's because you and I, by faith, can be covered by the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Outside of justification and God's terms, there is no salvation. Here, what do you have? There's no, hey, I'll take some of this and I'm going to substitute something of my own. No. God is the one who makes the covenant with man. These are the terms. It's an unconditional surrender. The only way that a person is saved is by receiving the free offer of the gospel. Unconditional surrender. There are no terms that you make up. Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus for your salvation? Do you believe that this breastplate of righteousness you need? Is there no other in this world? You cannot buy it. You cannot earn it. Jesus freely gives you this breastplate. That you ought to wear it. That you ought to treasure it. You ought to trust that it protects you. Here we think about the, the dangers, the wiles of Satan. When he starts his accusations, the breastplate of righteousness is there to protect you. We haven't even begun to talk about the dangers of God who is a consuming fire. How will you stand before the terrifying God unless you are covered by the very righteousness of Jesus Christ? Here we think also about righteousness imparted. Satan likes to get involved about here. It's, oh good, you're trusting in Jesus. Let's just keep that to yourself. Continue living however you want to live because you're saved. Well, here, we ought to think about the work that God does in a sinner's life. Meaning that salvation is not merely up here. Salvation is here. Salvation is here. Salvation is there. Meaning it's it changes your life. All kinds of people can claim, hey, listen, I, I live the wicked life, but you know what? I prayed the prayer 50 years ago, and my life is fine. I'll, I'll, I'm going to be okay. But the question is, is, is there evidence of salvation in your life? We think about how justification, that's the point that a person crosses from death to life. He actually crosses from from death, passes out of death into life. But the evidence that he is saved is found in his sanctification. When he passed from death to life, as at the moment that he believed. Justification is sin being pardoned or forgiven. The guilt of sin being removed. Sanctification is sin being subdued. It is the breaking of the power of sin in your life. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 4. Says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. This is the breaking of that power of sin in your life. Here Satan's lie is that you can be saved. But it doesn't matter how you live. 
The truth is that a sinner saved by grace lives for his Lord Jesus. He recognizes the voice of his master. And the master says, obey. Obey these commandments. Obey my word. And that we are those who say any sacrifice in this life is insignificant compared to following Jesus Christ. Are you striving for holiness? Are you striving for sanctification in your life? That is the evidence of salvation. That we would part with our sinful ways. That we would learn to treasure the ways of our God. That we would begin to love the things that Jesus loves. And we think about how the truth of God's word here applies to you and to me. Are you outside of Christ? Then trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. Not your righteousness, but his and his alone. Are you trusting in Jesus, but you realize that you're distracted by the wiles of Satan? Then you must begin by fighting the good fight. You must trust in Jesus, but realize that that has ramifications for your life. If you're going to trust in Jesus, there must also be the evidence of sanctification in your life. Not my will, but Christ's will be done. Are you wallowing in the pit of self-righteousness? Then you must repent of that. You must trust in Jesus Christ. You must give up your self-righteousness. The fig leaves, put them away. Put on the plate armor of Jesus Christ. Do you have no relation to Christ's church? He who is connected to the head, who is Christ, must be connected to the body, his body, which is the church. That we must desire to be part of Christ's body. We're told that the work of Christ's church is for the equipping of the saints. So that we might grow in knowledge and that we might come to unity and to perfection. That we wouldn't be blown and tossed about by the winds of doctrine and the philosophies of this world. That the church, Christ's church, is the pillar and support of the truth. That this is where we're nourished. This is where we have fellowship. This is where we spur one another on to love and to good deeds. We think also about the common occasions in which Satan comes to attack you. Satan often attacks us when we finally settle down to pray. What? You think someone as dirty and filthy as you can approach God in prayer? Well, he's going to come up with all kinds of lies. Hebrews 4.16, to let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This is what we do when we pray. We're coming boldly. God, you have said that we have a mediator in Jesus Christ, that he is the one who presents our request to you. He is the one interceding for us at your right hand. This is why we can come boldly to you in prayer. We ought not to be sheepish. We ought to come boldly. We ought to come with confidence. Satan also attacks us right after you've sinned. What? You call yourself a Christian? Huh? You believe that? 1 John 1, 9 and 10. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the promise that our God gives us. 
If we confess our sins, if we repent of them, if we forsake them, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. After a success, however great or small, you realize that Satan will come to attack you. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Be careful, those of you who think you stand on your own, lest you fall. None of us are None of us are immune to a fall. You must realize it can happen to any one of us. Here we ought to say that we are only unworthy servants. We have only done what God has required of us. Satan also attacks us on the deathbed. Perhaps some of you are too young to think that that time will come. Perhaps some of you are not far from it. Struggling with your own health, struggling with your life ebbing away. Here, you realize, if you look at the accounts of Christians in the past, giants of the faith, but yet, when it came time to their deathbed, Satan was still there trying to attack them, trying to demoralize them. You and I ought to be thankful. That when Jesus died his death on the cross, he conquered Satan. And there will come a time when Jesus returns and is at that time that he will defeat the final enemy, the enemy of death. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That victory will be at the end, but that victory is even now, even today. Those of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, this is victory even now. Today is the day of salvation. If you have not trust in him, realize that this offer comes nowhere else in the world. It comes only from the Lord Jesus. He alone is your hope for forgiveness and eternal life. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for you are one who gladly receives sinners. We confess to you, Father, that we have no righteousness of our own. And Father, we admit that we are these little idol-making factories. We set up idols of ourselves, idols of our work, idols of our home. Father, we pray that you would continually help us cleanse our lives from the various distractions from our Lord Jesus, that he indeed is our protector, that he has given us his armor. We pray, Father, that we would be those who put on the full armor, that we would trust in you, we would trust your promises, that you alone are the one who promises the forgiveness of sins, that through your son's righteousness, we can be covered. We thank you for your provision for us. May we follow you faithfully. We be delight in the goodness of whom you are. And we thank you, Father, for in you alone is eternal life. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Please turn in your hymnals to hymn 435. We will stand and sing together. Not what my hands have done, that's 435.